Welcome to episode 96 of FRT. I'm Brad Carr in the suburbs of Washington, where there's a growing mood of optimism with some good early signs of vaccine efficacy against some of the new COVID strains. We hope those signals continue and we hope that you're keeping safe and well. You may have seen that we hosted the IAF Asia Pacific Summit last week, though depending on your own time zone, you may not have caught all of the discussions. We had a great lineup of C-suite executives and central bank governors and some very insightful discussions on the big digital finance topics that we focus on here at the IAF. So this FRT episode captures the highlights from those sessions, led off by Monetary Authority of Singapore Managing Director Ravi Menon and DBS CEO Piyush Gupta. We've spliced together these highlights around three main themes that came through across various panels and fireside chats. Firstly, the notion of a digital Bretton Woods and how to better enable international digital cooperation. A subject that Ravi had put squarely on our agenda last October at the IAF annual membership meeting and which he elaborated on further here. Secondly, the role of SMEs in the digital economy and how banks and payments companies can support them in the online e-commerce world. And thirdly, a very pronounced focus on customer centricity, very much at the centre of how banks and insurers are pursuing their own digital transformation agendas. So let's kick off firstly on the digital Bretton Woods notion, firstly with Ravi, We'll then hear from Piyush and from Visa Asia President Chris Clark from a panel they shared before bringing in some thoughts that Next Trade Group CEO Kadi Swaminen also shared from a separate panel. Here's Ravi. I think there's a growing uh, consensus that we need to move into a, a digital version of Bretton Woods, uh, if I may use a phrase, uh, meaning that we need to move beyond the traditional free trade agreements that were for a different era. Uh, agriculture, manufacturing, and some services. Increasingly, it is going to be knowledge-based trade, digital trade, e-commerce, uh, data flows and data connectivity, recognition of, say, distributed ledgers across borders, uh, payments, cross-border payments. There's a whole lot of issues that uh, are digital in nature, and we need to set the rule book for that. Now, as with all these things, uh, I don't think we can get there in one grand vision. Um, well, in Bretton Woods, I think that was more or less what was done. I think that's not going to be possible in today's world. Uh, what we are seeing is so-called digital economy agreements cropping up between countries, bilateral deals. Uh, the Singapore-Australia deal is one of the early ones. Uh, we've done one with Chile and uh, with Chile and New Zealand. The one in Australia, I think, is quite comprehensive, and it has several chapters and provisions to make digital trade and digital connectivity more trusted, more secure, more efficient, uh, and at lower cost. And this means uh, having mutual uh, understanding of each other's protocols and comfort in each other's protocols. Uh, we're now exploring our digital economy agreements with South Korea and the United Kingdom. We've broached the subject with the United States. Um, well, the United States has lots of things on its plate. Uh, they have expressed interest because they see this. I, I don't think the U.S. is going to come back uh, roaring into uh, TPP or other traditional trade agreements. I think there is still uh, uh, not enough consensus within the U.S. on this, but there is, I think, uh, greater receptivity to digital trade agreements. And these actually benefit the U.S. tremendously because you're a knowledge-based economy, uh, many large digital players. And if we can have assurance and rules of the game set globally that allows them to operate without undue hindrance in a secure manner, uh, that, I think, will be a huge plus for the United States and for many other economies which are on the digital journey. So I think uh, 
and the WTO is getting onto this uh, with a uh, initiative on e-commerce. Uh, and Singapore is working with Japan and Australia uh, as a convener for this uh, joint statement on e-commerce. So I think, again, pieces are coming together slowly but surely. Do not just two or three, but four things which are top of mind for me. I think uh, need resolution, at least a lot of uh, engagement uh, at the global level. The first broadly is uh, an area you referred to. You talked about data and server localization. I sort of categorize it even larger as this issue of technology fragmentation. Uh, it is a fairly large issue, and obviously some of it spills into things which might be difficult to resolve, which is uh, protocols and standards, uh, which are now um, splitting up. If you have a splinter net, for example, between a China-led block and a Western-led block, it's going to create a serious problem in terms of driving efficiency across the world. So to me, that's part of the, the thing that we need to try and discuss as well. But uh, closer to uh, financial services, I think the issues around both uh, infrastructure localization and data localization are uh, a lot more germane to the businesses that we run. A lot of people talk about data localization. I think it's really important. Trade flows, uh, capital flows are global. Data needs to follow the state and capital flows to drive efficiency. Increasingly, companies operate in different countries. Individuals have accounts in different countries. We need to be able to move information around to drive both efficiency and uh, effectiveness. And frankly, for us as banks, many of our activities, risk management, AML, KYC, market risk, credit risk, they cannot be done efficiently without the free flow of data. Less attention is paid to the infrastructure localization issue, but I think that's substantial as well. If you want the efficiencies and therefore the scalability that you get with low-cost technology, that can only come from uh, being able to create common infrastructure that spans countries. And so the minute you have to have individual infrastructure sets in every country, you defeat the promise of technology um, when you go down that path. So that's one category. A second category I would highlight is um, um, to do with um, a subset, subset of this data localization issue, but it's uh, particularly important, is the AML KYC agenda. So over the years, this is obviously the, the banking system, the financial sector has been put at the coal phase of trying to protect uh, the world from terrorism, money laundering, uh, you know, wildlife trade, tire protection, slave, whatever it is. And I can understand why. I mean, the un underlying dictum is follow the money, and therefore the banks are the best place to put the barriers. The problem is that uh, the expectations and the approach, the requirement, uh, is uh, not only onerous, but not appropriate for our times. So what happens, the good news is that in the last decade, about a billion people have been able to get into the, the financial system through low-cost digital uh, services. But at the same time, there are another one and a half billion who still don't have access to financial services. And one of the biggest challenges to bringing these uh, into the fold is the KYC regime and the AML regimes. Nielsen's AI research did uh, a report recently. They surveyed a bunch of companies and they, uh, who said that each one of them conducts over 100 million checks a year. Each check takes five to 20 hours of work. And by the way, our current regimes expect us to do many of these checks on an annual basis. So the cost structure of bringing people into the fold, the financial inclusion agenda, the biggest challenge to that today is an inordinately uh, onerous and complex AY, AML and KYC regime. And frankly, an ineffective regime because for the you know, $150 billion that is spent on this every year, precious little comes out of it. The levels of indictments that we get from this process anywhere in the world are, are, are very slow. So to me, that's the second agenda that requires to be on the global uh, uh, discussion board. A third I would talk to is uh, the whole agenda around artificial intelligence and the rule book around uh, AI. What's kosher and what's not kosher? 
Now, a lot of people worry about AI models because they could be exclusionary. Uh, the reality, though, is our industry has been based on the notion that we discriminate risk. So we find people who are risk-worthy and we lend them money. The insurance companies find people who are insurable and they insure them. Uh, but when an AI model starts discriminating, then we all start getting worried. So how do we define an agenda which says this is what we really want to achieve and this is an unintended consequence of uh, the, the tools that we're using? I think, again, that requires some uh, global understanding and, and debate. Uh, and finally, the last thing I'll leave for you before I, I, I pass on is I do think we still have to resolve the issue of systemic stability with non-bank players uh, entering the digital finance space. Uh, there are issues of level playing field, but I think the bigger issues are systemic stability issues. And today, our whole architecture of governance and regulation tends to look at the regulated industry and the regulated sector as a banking sector. Anything outside of that uh, is not addressed. Well, that sector is getting bigger and bigger in the digital finance world. And so it is uh, you know, high time that we have to get together and figure out the rules that, that should apply to engaging with that part of the industry as well. We, we fundamentally need a way better way whether it's you know, governments, regulators, business leaders, to be able to coalesce, discuss and align on just really basic fundamentals about data use and, and storage and even and data transfer. There's just so many different approaches that are yeah. um, around now that are leading to very suboptimal outcomes. And you know, you just think about the perceived, this perceived, I call it, trade-off between consumer privacy and data sharing. But the reality is you actually need both. There's, there's no, there's no trade-off there yet. And, and Piyush talked about this, um, you know, alluded to this in his, in his opening remarks. And, and look, another example, I think of that cybersecurity, um, which is a most essential element of consumer protection as, as we've moved into this digital age. It's a huge priority for us. I mean, we, we've invested about $9 billion in our tech stack over the past five years to keep our processing availability up at that 99.99% reliability, but almost 5% of our workforce is, is on our cyber team. And that just shows how important it is for us. It's a 24 seven thing. We're always on to be looking at threats in, in the cyber system, in that cyber space. And actually we, we just had a, a, a risk and security summit this week, usually we'd have a thousand people at the Raffles City Convention Center here packed in in Singapore, but that turned into a virtual event like this one. Um, and, you know, with the virtual events, you get a lot more people. We had 1,800 delegates, but yeah. talking specifically focused on how the digital age is, is really raising the imperative on fraud, trends, authentication, cyber threats. Um, I, I'd say also on top of that, uh, and this is a bit of a hobby horse of mine, but I, I actually don't believe that data localization requirements anywhere can help to enhance cybersecurity. Um, keeping data onshore doesn't make it safer. Um, cyber attacks happen whether your data is onshore or offshore. It's, it's it, it, to be honest, having non-onshore data and a more global approach to data makes it way easier to assess threat patterns and vulnerabilities. And, so if we get back to that original question of, of yours, you know, it, there needs to be a way, way more robust discussion about that. Um, common approaches to data use, common approaches to consumer consent management, because it actually doesn't matter where that data is physically located, 
It's actually the, the big issue is how it can be accessed. Yeah. Who can access it? How can they use it when they access it? And, and I think business and government working together, um, getting consumer choice at the center of data management, but at the same time, promoting digital trades, really important. It's easier said than done. There are some really forward thinking governments that are leading the way. We've heard a bit about what Singapore's doing with public private partnerships. Japan started those G20 discussions um, on data free flow with trust, as they call it. Um, Australia is developing a consumer data rights policy. And that actually, interestingly, is not only for financial services sector, but for other sectors as well. I think without a doubt, we need to establish global forums. The new Bretton Woods have got to be around the digital economy. Um, so I, I'm, I'm in sharp agreement, violent agreement with that. Uh, I think one of the things we need to get clear in our minds is, uh, particularly in the context of data, what exactly are we solving for? Is it data privacy uh, issues? Uh, is it um, AML KYC issues? Uh, is it um, you know cybersecurity issues? Every country, when they come up with a data policy, seems to have a completely different slant on what exactly. In fact, in many, in many cases, it just seems to be nationalism. I think a discussion forum is important, and I think establishing a lowest common denominator approach is what we will wind up at. I think it's very hard to come up with an, a, a, a standard, uh, which is what I said. Everybody should approach a, a common standard for some of the stuff. I think a common standard will be hard. And it'll be hard because the nature of data is such that um, people's comfort with what they can and are willing to do with data varies widely. So one, it varies by age. Young people feel very differently about privacy yeah. and giving up data than you know um, others do. Second, it certainly differs by geography. Uh, in the part of the world where I am, it's not you know the classic Western liberal thought. So the needs of society and a more um, uh, institutional approach uh, to data and, and the use of data is very yeah. prevalent in this part of the world. The, 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 the primacy of you know, individual rights and individual use of data is not as sharply defined. And that's yeah. just the nature of the societies that we live in over here. I did an op-ed in the FT early on in the pandemic that I thought the use of data of people to protect lives and create greater health security is a sensible thing to do even if it is private data of people. Now, I got a lot of uh, flack from it, but most of the flack actually came from Westerners. And so it just tells you that there's a fundamental thing uh, uh, there. Uh, yeah. A third issue is, uh, you know, even we, the reality is how we think about data varies from time to time. Sometimes I don't want to give up my data. I have a sense of privacy. And other times, if I think the value exchange is sensible, I'm getting a great yeah. deal. I'm quite happy to put my name and my phone number over there. So that's not uh, fixed. And finally... Yeah. Even how we think about data is different from how we feel about data. We all say we don't want to be tracked all the time. It, you know, it would be like 1984, Big Brother. If I ask any of you to show me a mobile phone and uh, let me see what apps you have on. Well, you have Google Maps on, you have Waze on, you're being tracked all over the uh, place, your mobile phone is sending signals, and you've made the trade-off. Your actions tell me that you're willing to do a lot more than your brain tells you you're willing to do. So yeah. I think to take all of these and package them into one standard for the world would be hard. Uh, we're currently in negotiation with Korea, uh, and we've just started the ball rolling with the UK. Um, I have no doubt because uh, uh, we do a lot of work with the Bank of Canada. I have no doubt that they'll be um, in the chain as well. If you look at the nature of these agreements, they're actually quite uh, uh, basic. They talk about, one, the capacity and willingness to share digital identities. I think yeah. that's really important because that underlies a lot of stuff, whether it is 
uh, you know, health or immigration or control or security, but uh, a digital identity sharing protocol, I think that's important. They are actively focused on trade uh, enablement. So e-invoicing, e-invoicing and what kind of trade and payment in, uh, information should be free to flow uh, across the country. So uh, the facilitation of all that is very good. They talk a little bit about uh, trust. You know, how do you enable trusted data flow? So what kind of personal data protection um, do you need, whether it's a consent architecture or just a physical architecture? So I think that's an important thing. And then they do talk about uh, the other thing we mentioned, which is how do you build trust in things like AI uh, and so on. So those are the key elements of what these uh, agreements are trying to touch on. But the nature of the agreements is actually uh, the way Chris outlined. They're not hard-coded. They're fairly broad. They come to some general understanding and agreements on what the countries are trying to do bilaterally. Uh, and so to my mind, they're actually a good template to be able to scale up uh, and take to a broader universe. Yes. For digital regulations, is um, is really important, I think, for us to have more standardized, harmonized uh, digital regulations um, around the world so that companies can easily export to different markets and import from different markets without having to deal with uh, this diverse web of data privacy rules and digital taxes and consumer protection rules, but are able to apply a rather similar standard. And uh, Brad, to your point about this digital bread and woods, if you will, this is a very important um, idea and initiative to um, bolster uh, the adoption of good digital regulations while also financing companies' digital transformation and these last mile um, uh, programs uh, in a more uh, uh, holistic fashion and, and in a more broad fashion around the world. But I'm, I'm very big on this kind of harmonization and finding some uh, greater interoperability among digital uh, regulatory regimes around the world. It's absolutely critical uh, for us to uh, streamline the system if we want and, and, um, and make it easier for companies to trade across borders. A lot more to do in the space of international digital cooperation. It needs to be a key part of the G20 and G7 agendas. Appreciating that there will not realistically be a singular global data privacy regime and that we need to be pragmatic and focus on interoperability across borders. This will continue to be a big focus for us at the IF, and we will discuss it further on another panel at our G20 conference in June. We're going to now pick up a different aspect that weaved through those same two panel discussions, again from Chris and from Carty, where they each highlighted the challenges for SMEs and the initiatives that might help to enable their growth. Here's Chris. Well, just to the core question, definitely new rules are needed. And I think we know that we talked about, you talked about those rules of the road, but most of those existing rules were written way before the digital age even existed. And I think we'd all agree that a lot of the most recent ones, you know, aren't even necessarily keeping pace with the innovation, the change that we're seeing everywhere. But what I think I'd like to just actually in this conversation shift the narrative a little bit because you know that whole the whole digital economy and trade issues are not just about big tech and big business and I think so often we kind of get lost in that big end of town now from from visa's perspective and what's very important to us and, and the payments industry as a whole is just getting the recovery and growth of small businesses right as well because don't, don't forget Asia-Pacific economies, economies in Asia have been built um, on the success of small business. And, you know, it, it's just the success of those, I think, has, has too often been overlooked. There's, we look back on 2020, um, we know that 
pandemic accelerated digitization. Um, it's highlighted that role of data in everything we do. And, and at the same time, all that online and offline world is, is merging together. Um, we've, we've actually, believe it or not, we've got something very fancy called the Visa Economic Empowerment Institute, um, our in-house think tank. But it, it recently published some research and, you know, a couple of the points from that were somewhat obviously small businesses with an online presence and access to digital tools have been way more resilient during the time of COVID. I mean, that's sort of an obvious statement to make. But the other really interesting data point that came out of that survey was that less than half of small businesses around the world are actually online. And, and that's quite a significant that's quite a significant statistic. And, and then if you add to the fact that as we know, we've heard a lot of the things that happened last year in terms of specifically that acceleration of e-commerce growth, you know, 30% year on year growth in, in 2020. And, and that happened despite the fact that 49% of people on the planet don't even use the internet. Um, so it's quite incredible for us sitting here having this conference uh, leveraging all the amazing broadband services we have to think that there's still half the people on the planet that don't even have access to internet. So one of the big focuses that we're trying to do is to bridge that digital divide and increasing financial inclusion. I think all of us participate in a lot of very um, important and impactful consumer-focused financial literacy and inclusion programs, but where we're really focusing a lot of our efforts are on just what we call practical business skills and getting small business entrepreneurs online to start and manage and grow their businesses. And, you know, a great example of that is in Indonesia, where we work with Gojek, um, actually Gojek, which is now GoTo, um, after yep. their merger with Tokopedia last week. But a practical business skills education program where we're working with thousands of their partners, small and micro businesses, to bring them into the digital system. Um, we've made a commitment to grow, to put 50 million small businesses into the digital world um, over the next couple of years. And that's a global number, but 10 million in Asia Pacific. And those partnerships with people like GoTo, GoJack, are instrumental in making that happen. And, and also our foundation is, is, is really plugging a lot of capital, um, $200 million worth of, of funding grants into um, supporting small businesses and entrepreneurs. And the, these are the engines of the future in terms of payments. It's how people can just enter that formal financial system that from a small business perspective. And so that's a bit of a snapshot from our perspective on what the digital economy means for Visa, it's not just about big tech. It's not just about that big end of town. It actually is a lot about how we can promote and grow small businesses around the world. Yeah, I think in general, um, companies are onboarding marketplaces and in particularly B2C markets, that's quite easy. In B2B markets, um, companies do need quite a lot of documentation uh, to verify and authenticate themselves with marketplaces and their a corporate digital identity would certainly be beneficial. Just as we have identity for consumers, we should have one for SMEs for them to have essentially one master key to unlock these services 
in their own jurisdiction, but also in other parts of the world and be more trusted with um, uh, uh, customers. In general, e-commerce is a huge enabler for um, SME trade in particular. When we look at marketplaces such as eBay or Alibaba, 90 to 100%, depending on the market, of SMEs that sell on those marketplaces also export, precisely because the marketplace enables SMEs to reach so many uh, customers around the world. At the same time, we see over and over these challenges of trust in cross-border transactions, particularly for B2B uh, marketplaces, uh, where the customer still needs uh, trust and oftentimes the marketplace um, uh, services as a trust uh, provider, but there is uh, quite a lot of upfront uh, work and uh, know your customer um, work uh, before that happens. We also see everywhere and all times, uh, this is absolutely universal, we see a, a challenge with logistics uh, for companies that sell products, the logistics cost for single items or even some more bulk shipments um, uh, is high in companies' view, and um, uh, customs procedures is another challenge. Uh, these are, of course, challenges that have existed for small businesses in trade, but now they are magnifying, uh, magnified, and I think governments uh, should play a role there to facilitate uh, customs procedures for small, uh, low-value items in particular. Um, and then um, we also see in smaller developing countries for B2C, um, companies, these challenges of interoperable payments and how do I get uh, paid easily uh, without having to do a lot of workarounds. Um, and there's great demand for services like PayPal uh, all around the world. Um, but uh, those challenges are less in more advanced e-commerce markets. Companies everywhere um, require working capital. And I think this is where the banking community will play a big role alongside with fintechs and embedded finance solutions where we can enable companies to have these fast cash to cash, uh, cash con conversion cycles uh, when they sell online and they can access the working capital they need to fulfill orders. And we see this as a huge, huge uh, issue worldwide where companies need these fast um, working capital um, instruments. So I think it boils down to finance, logistics, and increasingly then to what the prior panel was talking about, which is uh, companies challenges in navigating the digital regulatory landscape. Uh, they are finally starting to realize that privacy rules differ market to market are becoming more stringent. They are realizing that customer um, uh, or consumer protection uh, regulations are also uh, different market by market. And they are trying to get a handle of all these digital regulations that they need to comply with. And this is a really a challenge for little firms that are uh, getting orders from all around the world, but uh, lack the cap capacity to comply with these complex, uh, diverse regulations. This focus on what we can do to support SMEs also came through in the final theme we want to highlight here, about customer centricity as a central tenet in a firm's own digital transformation agenda. In discussing the recent IIF Deloitte Realising the Digital Promise report, Sumitomo Mitsui Chief Digital Officer Katsunori Tanazaki called out the needs of different corporate customer segments in their own transformation efforts and how SMBC can help them. And when I discussed e-commerce with Bangkok Bank President Chatsuri Sofanpanik, I asked him separately about what the bank is doing for its clients and what the bank is doing to prepare itself. And it was striking just how intertwined those answers were. So here's a little, firstly from Tanazaki and then from Chatsuri. Well, it's a rapid progress of digitalization all our own changes as a financial institution is important, but 
uh, I think most important things are the changes of customers across all industries. Uh, the key is to be ahead of the changes of customers by responding to them through our own changes. Uh, regardless of individual or corporate clients, uh, customers themselves are advancing digitalization at a tremendous speed, and COVID-19 has accelerated further. As a financial institution, uh, it is important to have the capability to respond to these developments. Customer needs are shifting to how to respond to digitalization. I think we need to seriously consider and request to meet these expectations. In the past, to realize digitalization, it has often been discussed as a matter of technology centricity. But we as MBC have consistently focused our thoughts on customer centricity as we intend to respond to the needs of our customers. We advance from the demand of B2C and B2B to the realm of B2B2C. A specific example is recently released Toyota Wallet and Uniqlo Pay that we have begun to provide embedded solutions that are behind the scenes of services to individual customers provided by corporate clients. Large corporates such as Toyota and Uniqlo can handle their digitalization on their own, but small medium enterprise cannot do that. Therefore, we have established a new digital subsidiary to support those SMEs digitalization. We have to be part of the daily life and financial part is how to embed it into part of the current activities and so forth. So we have been working with many of the uh, the likes of the logistic companies in terms of food delivery, so payment on delivery. Uh, when they do uh, back payment, when goods arrive at or their offices, and then uh, payment through the QR code, for example, so they don't need to touch money uh, and so forth. I think that activity has also been increasing uh, in a significant manner. The other one that is quite remarkable is because of the stimulus program that the government has been putting in order to help solve the situation of the COVID, uh, have been able to uh, align so many of the smaller shops uh, to be online system because the government will provide the support for the consumer, uh, pay 50-50, the consumer pay 50 and the government share another 50% uh, for small items, but those have to be with the merchants uh, online. So that's also another great way of introducing the online system to many of the uh, people, smaller shops and so forth, which in normal circumstances would be difficult. But of course, this is also lead to greater transparency in the long term and probably put them also on the uh, uh, taxation platform. The other one that uh, mentioned earlier about the uh, digital ID, the Central Bank also has been working with the Banking Association in order to adopt the uh, national digital ID. And then now we can open through the KYC through the facial uh, uh, recognition. Uh, and I think that will probably will move on to more activities in the e-commerce and later on to other industries and the government agencies. So certainly 
uh, these things has taken place in a relatively short time over the last 18 months. But the infrastructure has been built for, for a long time, but would not have been possible if there are no event of this type. And I think we, the banking side, have to change ourselves in a significant manner and embed ourselves to be part of their daily life, whether on the consumer side or the business corporate banking side. A lot of great insights there from regional leaders, with those we've featured here from Singapore, Bangkok, Tokyo and Los Angeles, and others that joined us over the two days. Through the three recurring themes that we've highlighted here, you can get the sense of how critical it is that we get international digital policy and cooperation right, in order to ultimately bring the best opportunities for SMEs to participate in the online world and the e-commerce economy, and for them to be able to export to foreign buyers. In that context, we also discussed the great developments in digital identity and trade finance modernisation beyond what we've highlighted in this FRT episode, and the full session videos are available via the IAF website. With that, let's now turn and look ahead on FRT, and we've got some more great guests coming up over the next few weeks. Next up, my colleague Conan French will speak with Ronit Ghose of City, a leading global analyst in all things fintech, and they're going to talk about developments in digital money. Professor Doug Arner of Hong Kong University is another such global leader, and we're going to talk about the, the fintech big tech landscape, including the trends observed in China. And we're going to check in with the FSB Secretariat in Baal, discussing stable coins and the FSB CPMI cross-border payments roadmap. So please stay safe. Please join us again for those upcoming episodes. I'm Brad Carr. Thanks for listening on FRT.